Section 32 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901 through 1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sean McElhenney. ReadingItself.com. Section 32. Theodore Roosevelt, December 8, 1908. Part 2. The Courts. I most earnestly urge upon the Congress the duty of increasing the totally inadequate salaries now given to our judges. On the whole, there is no body of public servants who do as valuable work, nor whose moneyed reward is so inadequate compared to their work. Beginning with the Supreme Court, the judges should have their salaries doubled. It is not befitting the dignity of the nation that its most honored public servants should be paid sums so small compared to what they would earn in private life that the performance of public service by them implies an exceedingly heavy pecuniary sacrifice. It is earnestly to be desired that some method should be devised for doing away with the long delays which now obtain in the administration of justice, and which operate with peculiar severity against persons of small means, and favor only the very criminals whom it is most desirable to punish. These long delays in the final decisions of cases make in the aggregate a crying evil and a remedy should be devised. Much of this intolerable delay is due to improper regard paid to technicalities, which are a mere hindrance to justice. In some noted recent cases, this overregard for technicalities has resulted in a striking denial of justice and flagrant wrong to the body politic. At the last election, certain leaders of organized labor made a violent and sweeping attack upon the entire judiciary of the country, an attack couched in such terms as to include the most upright, honest, and broad-minded judges, no less than those of narrower mind and more restricted outlook. It was the kind of attack admirably fitted to prevent any successful attempt to reform abuses of the judiciary, because it gave the champions of the unjust judge their eagerly desired opportunity to shift their ground into a championship of just judges who were unjustly assailed. Last year, before the House Committee on the Judiciary, these same labor leaders formulated their demands, specifying the bill that contained them, refusing all compromise, stating they wished the principle of that bill or nothing. They insisted on a provision that in a labor dispute no injunction should issue except to protect a property right, and specifically provided that the right to carry on business should not be construed as a property right, and in a second provision, their bill made legal in a labor dispute any act or agreement by or between two or more persons that would not have been unlawful if done by a single person. In other words, this bill legalized blacklisting and boycotting in every form legalizing, for instance, those forms of the secondary boycott which the Anthracite Coal Strike Commission so unreservedly condemned, while the right to carry on a business was explicitly taken out from under that protection which the law throws over property. The demand was made that there should be trial by jury in contempt cases, thereby most seriously impairing the authority of the courts. All this represented a course of policy which, if carried out, would mean the enthronement of class privilege in its crudest and most brutal form, and the destruction of one of the most essential functions of the judiciary in all civilized lands. 
The violence of the crusade for this legislation and its complete failure illustrate two truths which it is essential our people should learn. In the first place, they ought to teach the working man, the laborer, the wage worker, that by demanding what is improper and impossible, he plays into the hands of his foes. Such a crude and vicious attack upon the courts, even if it were temporarily successful, would inevitably in the end cause a violent reaction and would band the great mass of citizens together, forcing them to stand by all the judges, competent and incompetent alike, rather than to see the wheels of justice stopped. A movement of this kind can ultimately result in nothing but damage to those in whose behalf it is nominally undertaken. This is a most unhealthy truth, which it is wise for all our people to learn. Any movement based on that class hatred, which at times assumes the name of class consciousness, is certain ultimately to fail and if it temporarily succeeds, to do far-reaching damage. Class consciousness, where it is merely another name for the odious vice of class selfishness, is equally noxious whether in an employer's association or in a working man's association. The movement in question was one in which the appeal was made to all working men to vote primarily not as American citizens, but as individuals of a certain class in society. Such an appeal in the first place revolts the more high-minded and far cited among the persons to whom it is addressed, and in the second place, tends to arouse a strong antagonism among all other classes of citizens, whom it therefore tends to unite against the very organization on whose behalf it is issued. The result is therefore unfortunate from every standpoint. This healthy truth, by the way, will be learned by the socialists if they ever succeed in establishing in this country an important national party based on such class consciousness and selfish class interest. The wage workers, the working men, the laboring men of the country, by the way in which they repudiated the effort to get them to cast their votes in response to an appeal to class hatred, have emphasized their sound patriotism and Americanism. The whole country has cause to feel pride in this attitude of sturdy independence, in this uncompromising insistence upon acting simply as good citizens, as good Americans, without regard to fancied and improper class interests. Such an attitude is an object lesson in good citizenship to the entire nation. But the extreme reactionaries, the persons who blind themselves to the wrongs now and then committed by the courts on laboring men, should also think seriously as to what such a movement as this portends. The judges who have shown themselves able and willing effectively to check the dishonest activity of the very rich man who works in equity by the mismanagement of corporations, who have shown themselves alert to do justice to the wage worker and sympathetic with the needs of the mass of our people, so that the dweller in the tenement houses, the man who practices a dangerous trade, the man who is crushed by excessive hours of labor, feel that their needs are understood by the courts. These judges are the real bulwark of the courts. These judges, the judges of the stamp of the president-elect who have been fearless in opposing labor when it has gone wrong, but fearless also in holding to strict account corporations that work iniquity and far-sighted in seeing that the working man gets his rights, are the men of all others to whom we owe it that the appeal for such violent and mistaken legislation has fallen on deaf ears, that the agitation for its passage proved to be without substantial basis. The courts are jeopardized primarily by the action of those federal and state judges who show inability 
or unwillingness to put a stop to the wrongdoing of very rich men under modern industrial conditions and inability or unwillingness to give relief to men of small means or wage workers who are crushed down by these modern industrial conditions, who, in other words, fail to understand and apply the needed remedies for the new wrongs produced by the new and highly complex social and industrial civilization which has grown up in the last half century. The rapid changes in our social and industrial life which have attended this rapid growth have made it necessary that, in applying to concrete cases the great rule of right laid down in our Constitution, there should be a full understanding and appreciation of the new conditions to which the rules are to be applied. What would have been an infringement upon liberty half a century ago may be the necessary safeguard of liberty today. What would have been an injury to property then may be necessary to the enjoyment of property now. Every judicial decision involves two terms, one as interpretation of the law, the other the understanding of the facts to which it is to be applied. The great mass of our judicial officers are, I believe, alive to those changes of conditions which so materially affect the performance of their judicial duties. Our judicial system is sound and effective at core and it remains and must ever be maintained as the safeguard of those principles of liberty and justice which stand at the foundation of American institutions. For, as Burke finally said, when liberty and justice are separated, neither is safe. There are, however, some members of the judicial body who have lagged behind in their understanding of these great and vital changes in the body politic, whose minds have never been opened to the new applications of the old principles made necessary by the new conditions. Judges of this stamp do lasting harm by their decisions because they convince poor men in need of protection that the courts of the land are profoundly ignorant of and out of sympathy with their needs and profoundly indifferent or hostile to any proposed remedy. To such men, it seems a cruel mockery to have any court decide against them on the ground that it desires to preserve liberty in a purely technical form by withholding liberty in any real and constructive sense. It is desirable that the legislature legislative bodies should possess, and wherever necessary, exercise the power to determine whether in a given case employers and employees are not on an equal footing, so that the necessities of the latter compel them to submit to such exactions as to hours and conditions of labor as unduly to tax their strength. And only mischief can result when such determination is upset on the ground that there must be no interference with the liberty to contract, often a merely academic liberty. The exercise of which is the negation of real liberty. There are certain decisions by various courts which have been exceedingly detrimental to the rights of wage workers. This is true of all the decisions that decide that men and women are, by the Constitution, guaranteed their liberty to contract to enter a dangerous occupation, or to work an undesirable or improper number of hours, or to work in unhealthy surroundings and therefore cannot recover damages when maimed in that occupation and cannot be forbidden to work what the legislature decides is an excessive number of hours or to carry on the work under conditions which the legislature decides to be unhealthy. The most dangerous occupations are often the poorest paid and those where the hours of work are longest. 
and in many cases those who go into them are driven by necessity so great that they have practically no alternative. Decisions such as those alluded to above nullify the legislative effort to protect the wage workers who most need protection from those employers who take advantage of their grinding need. They halt or hamper the movement for securing better and more equitable conditions of labor. The talk about preserving to the misery-hunted beings who make contracts for their service their liberty to make them is either to speak in a spirit of heartless irony or else to show an utter lack of knowledge of the conditions of life among the great masses of our fellow countrymen, a lack which unfits a judge to do good service, just as it would unfit any executive or legislative officer. There is also, I think, ground for the belief that substantial injustice is often suffered by employees in consequence of the customs of courts issuing temporary injunctions without notice to them and punishing them for contempt of court in instances where, as a matter of fact, they have no knowledge of any proceedings. Outside of organized labor, there is a widespread feeling that this system often works great injustice to wage workers when their efforts to better their working condition result in industrial disputes. A temporary injunction procured ex parte may, as a matter of fact, have all the effect of a permanent injunction in causing disaster to the wage worker's side in such a dispute. Organized labor is chafing under the unjust restraint which comes from repeated resort to this plan of procedure. Its discontent has been unwisely expressed and often improperly expressed, but there is a sound basis for it, and the orderly and law-abiding people of a community would be in a far stronger position for upholding the courts if the undoubtedly existing abuses could be provided against. Such proposals as those mentioned above as advocated by the extreme labor leaders contain the vital error of being class legislation of the most offensive kind. And even if enacted into law, I believe that the law would rightly be held unconstitutional. Moreover, the labor people are themselves now beginning to invoke the use of the power of injunction. During the last 10 years, and within my own knowledge, at least 50 injunctions have been obtained by labor unions in New York City alone, most of them being to protect the union label, a property right, but some being obtained for other reasons against employers. The power of injunction is a great equitable remedy, which should on no account be destroyed, but safeguards should be erected against its abuse. I believe that some such provisions as those I advocated a year ago for checking the abuse of the issuance of temporary injunctions should be adopted. In substance, provision should be made that no injunction or temporary restraining order issue otherwise than on notice except where irreparable injury would otherwise result. And in such case, a hearing on the merits of the order should be had within a short, fixed period, and if not then continued after hearing, it should forthwith lapse. Decisions should be rendered immediately, and the chance of delay minimized in every way. Moreover, I believe that the procedure should be sharply defined, and the judge required minutely to state the particulars both of his action and of his reasons therefore, so that the Congress can, if it desires, examine and investigate the same. The chief lawmakers in our country may be, and often are, the judges, because they are the final seat of authority. Every time they interpret contract, property, vested rights, due process of law, liberty, they necessarily enact into law parts of a system of social philosophy, and as such, interpretation is fundamental 
They give direction to all lawmaking. The decisions of the courts on economic and social questions depend upon their economic and social philosophy. And for the peaceful progress of our people during the 20th century, we shall owe most to those judges who hold to a 20th century economic and social philosophy and not to a long outgrown philosophy, which was itself the product of primitive economic conditions. Of course, a judge's views on progressive social philosophy are entirely second in importance to his possession of a high and fine character, which means the possession of such elementary virtues as honesty, courage, and fair-mindedness. The judge who owes his election to pandering to demagogic sentiments or class hatreds and prejudices, and the judge who owes either his election or his appointment to the money or the favor of a great corporation, are alike unworthy to sit on the bench, are alike traitors to the people, and no profundity of legal learning or correctness of abstract conviction on questions of public policy can serve as an offset to such shortcomings. But it is also true that judges, like executives and legislators, should hold sound views on the questions of public policy, which are of vital interest to the people. The legislators and executives are chosen to represent the people in enacting and administering the laws. The judges are not chosen to represent the people in this sense. Their function is to interpret the laws. The legislators are responsible for the laws, the judges for the spirit in which they interpret and enforce the laws. We stand aloof from the reckless agitators who would make the judges mere pliant tools of popular prejudice and passion, and we stand aloof from those equally unwise partisans of reaction and privilege who deny the proposition that, inasmuch as judges are chosen to serve the interests of the whole people, they should strive to find out what those interests are, and so far as they conscientiously can, should strive to give effect to popular conviction when deliberately and duly expressed by the lawmaking body. The courts are to be highly commended and staunchly upheld when they set their faces against wrongdoing or tyranny by a majority, but they are to be blamed when they fail to recognize under a government like ours the deliberate judgment of the majority as to a matter of legitimate policy when duly expressed by the legislature. Such lawfully expressed and deliberate judgment should be given effect by the courts, save in the extreme and exceptional cases where there has been a clear violation of a constitutional provision. Anything like frivolity or wantonness in upsetting such clearly taken governmental action is a grave offense against the republic. To protest against tyranny, to protect minorities from oppression, to nullify an act committed in a spasm of popular fury is to render a service to the Republic. But for the courts to arrogate to themselves functions which properly belong to the legislative bodies is all wrong and in the end works mischief. The people should not be permitted to pardon evil and slipshod legislation on the theory that the court will set it right. They should be taught that the right way to get rid of a bad law is to have the legislature repeal it and not to have the courts by ingenious hair-splitting nullify it. A law may be unwise and improper, but it should not for these reasons be declared unconstitutional by a strained interpretation, for the result of such action is to take away from the people at large their sense of responsibility and ultimately to destroy their capacity for orderly self-restraint and self-government. Under such a popular government as ours, rounded on the theory that in the long run the will of the people is supreme, the ultimate safety of the nation can only rest in training and guiding the people so that what they will shall be right. 
and not in devising means to defeat their will by the technicalities of strained construction. For many of the shortcomings of justice in our country, our people as a whole are themselves to blame, and the judges and juries merely bear their share together with the public as a whole. It is discreditable to us as a people that there should be difficulty in convicting murderers or in bringing to justice men who as public servants have been guilty of corruption or who have profited by the corruption of public servants. The result is equally unfortunate, whether due to hair-splitting technicalities in the interpretation of law by judges to sentimentality and class consciousness on the part of juries, or to hysteria and sensationalism in the daily press. For much of this failure of justice, no responsibility whatever lies on rich men as such. We who make up the mass of the people cannot shift the responsibility from our own shoulders. But there is an important part of the failure which lies especially to do with inability to hold to proper account men of wealth who behave badly." The chief breakdown is in dealing with the new relations that arise from the mutualism, the interdependence of our time. Every new social relation begets a new type of wrongdoing, of sin to use an old-fashioned word, and many years always elapse before society is able to turn this sin into crime, which can be effectively punished at law. During the lifetime of the older men now alive, the social relations have changed far more rapidly than in the preceding two centuries. The immense growth of corporations of business done by associations and the extreme strain and pressure of modern life have produced conditions which render the public confused as to who its really dangerous foes are. And among the public servants who have not only shared this confusion, but by some of their acts have increased it, are certain judges. Marked inefficiency has been shown in dealing with corporations and in resetting the proper attitude to be taken by the public, not only towards corporations, but towards labor and towards the social questions arising out of the factory system and the enormous growth of our great cities. The huge wealth that has been accumulated by a few individuals of recent years in what has amounted to a social and industrial revolution has been, as regards some of those individuals, made possible only by the improper use of the modern corporation. A certain type of modern corporation, with its officers and agents, its many issues of securities, and its constant consolidation with allied undertakings, finally becomes an instrument so complex as to contain a greater number of elements that, under very judicial decisions lend themselves to fraud and oppression than any device yet evolved in the human brain. Corporations are necessary instruments of modern business. They have been permitted to become a menace largely because the governmental representatives of the people have worked slowly in providing for adequate control over them. The chief offender in any given case may be an executive, a legislature, or a judge. Every executive head who advises violence instead of gradual action or who advocates ill-considered and sweeping measures of reform, especially if they are tainted with vindictiveness and disregard for the rights of the minority, is particularly blameworthy. The several legislatures are responsible for the fact that our laws are often prepared with slovenly haste and lack of consideration. Moreover, they are often prepared and still more frequently amended during passage at the suggestion of the very parties against whom they are afterwards 
standards enforced. Our great clusters of corporations, huge trusts, and fabulously wealthy multi-millionaires employ the very best lawyers they can obtain to pick flaws in these statutes after their passage. But they also employ a class of secret agents who seek, under the advice of experts, to render hostile legislation innocuous by making it unconstitutional, often through the insertion of what appear on their face to be drastic and sweeping provisions against the interest of the parties inspiring them, while the demagogues, the corrupt creatures who introduce blackmailing schemes to strike corporations, and all who demand extreme and undesirably radical measures show themselves to be the worst enemies of the very public whose loud-mouthed champion they profess to be. A very striking illustration of the consequences of carelessness in the preparation of a statute was the Employer's Liability Law of 1906. In the cases arising under that law, four out of six courts of first instance held it unconstitutional. Six out of nine justices of the Supreme Court held that its subject matter was within the province of congressional action, and four of the nine justices held it valid. It was, however, adjudged unconstitutional by a bare majority of the court, five to four. It was surely a very slovenly piece of work to frame the legislation in such shape as to leave the question open at all. Real damage has been done by the manifold and conflicting interpretations of the interstate commerce law. Control over the great corporations doing interstate business can be effective only if it is vested with full power in an administrative department, a branch of the federal executive carrying out a federal law. It can never be effective if a divided responsibility is left in both the state and the nation. It can never be effective if left in the hands of the courts to be decided by lawsuits. The courts hold a place of peculiar and deserved sanctity under our form of government. Respect for the law is essential to the permanence of our institutions, and respect for the law is largely conditioned upon respect for the courts. It is an offense against the republic to say anything which can weaken this respect, save for the gravest reason and in the most carefully guarded manner. Our judges should be held in peculiar honor and the duty of respectful and truthful comment and criticism, which should be binding when we speak of anybody, should be especially binding when we speak of them. On an average, they stand above any other servants of the community, and the greatest judges have reached the high level held by those few greatest patriots whom the whole country delights to honor. But we must face the fact that there are wise and unwise judges, just as there are wise and unwise executives and legislators. When a president or a governor behaves improperly or unwisely. The remedy is easy, for his term is short. The same is true with the legislator, although not to the same degree, for he is one of many who belong to the same given legislative body, and it is therefore less easy to fix his personal responsibility and hold him accountable therefore. With a judge who, being human, is also likely to err, but whose tenure is for life, there is no similar way of holding him to responsibility. Under ordinary conditions, the only form forms of pressure to which he is in any way amenable are public opinion and the action of his fellow judges. It is the last which is most immediately effective and to which we should look for the reform of abuses. Any remedy applied from without is fraught with risk. It is far better from every standpoint that the remedy should come from within. In no other nation in the world do the courts wield such vast and far-reaching power as in the United States. All that is necessary is that the courts as a whole should exercise this power with the far-sighted wisdom already shown by those judges 
who scan the future while they act in the present. Let them exercise this great power not only honestly and bravely, but with wise insight into the needs and fixed purposes of the people, so that they may do justice and work equity, so that they may protect all persons in their rights and yet break down the barriers of privilege, which is the foe of rights. End of section 32. Recording by Sean McElhenney. ReadingItself.com.